Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of To Be Determined with Bill and Dan. This time, talking to you from the far future. Where is the far future? It's after World War Four, So I guess that'd be the far future. Further ahead than we are now. Yep, at least by two wars worth. That's right. You know, we got, we got to work those in somehow because, you know, we're falling behind. Of course, they could be short wars. We're not really sure. This is true. Like, there was what that... There's like the 30 years war and the 100 years war from history, but there's also like the seven day war. That's right. So what story are we talking about here, Dan? Uh, This story is by Paul Anderson, and the name is Sam Hall, originally appeared in the August 1953 edition of Astounding Science Fiction. Here's another great example of a story written by an author that I encountered in my youth and read a lot of his his novels and had no idea that he was writing as early as he was. Yeah, it's really strange when you start looking, well, not even strange, but it's kind of surprising that the breadth of work that you can find, you know, even in the early years of science fiction by some of these authors, some of which, as you dig into it, you're like, I've never seen or even heard of some of these stories. Yeah, and, and of course, Paul Anderson is one of the big names in, in both fantasy and sci-fi from the 80s and 90s. Uh, but yeah, like you said, this one was originally published in 1953. So we're talking about a pretty big span a year between there and when I encountered him and the stuff that he was writing that was contemporary at the time. So what's this one about, Dan? So just to give a little background of, uh, of kind of the society that we're dealing with in this particular story, because it's pretty relevant. It, it seems that, as we mentioned earlier, it's after World War IV. The world is, seems to be in kind of an authoritarian police state almost. It's, it's very much run by the military or the police. There's lots of you know, people who are under suspicion of being part of the rebellion and People have to have loyalty tests, and they've got citizen IDs with all of their information attached to it that they have to carry around. Um, you know, again, very authoritarian, very, yeah, I'm not sure if it's bleak. That's not the word I would use, but it, it's very obvious that it's a very militaristic-driven sort of society. Yeah, there are implications, or there are places in the story where they indicate that things didn't necessarily go well in terms of of orderliness and productiveness in society after or between wars. And so at some point there was this rise of not even so much a national police state as a planetary police state, because it sounds like this is the way it is pretty much the whole world over. Right, and it somehow seems to be run by the Americans, as far as I can tell. Well, of course, American exceptionalism. It's 1953, of course. What else could it be? uh, yeah, and it and it does. They do make a reference somewhere that people asked for this police state or this type of security state to be set up because of you know who knows maybe things were really bad and they're like yeah the best thing we can do is is get some authoritarians in charge. But it could but anyway. never happen that things would transpire in the world that would make people want to crack down on terrorism and crime by controlling people's information, controlling their data, and and locking them down. Yeah, that, that's happen. just a completely foreign concept. I could never imagine that happening. Patriot Act. That's right. <clears throat> and so 
uh, we've so we got this. This is the society we're, we're living in, and we should probably do a little bit of character introduction. Uh, the, the main guy that we deal with is a guy by the name of Thornburg. I don't even know if he has a first name. He's Major Thornburg. He's uh, he's a member of the of security or intelligence, which are kind of the same thing. And he's kind of like a rock star programmer type guy who's in charge of this huge machine called Matilda. Not that I have any idea where they got that name from, and it's never explained. But but anyway, Matilda is this 1950s-style giant monolithic computer that has all the records and all the information about everybody in this society. And this guy is sort of like the head programmer who knows how it's all put together, knows how to run it, knows how to you know find information and, and program it and do all these cool things. Yeah, and then as you look through, you know, he's surrounded by people that he works with. Um, he's got an assistant named Rodney. Um, he's got a secretary named, what's the secretary's name? Judy, I think, maybe? June. There we go. June, I was close. So, and although everybody else has a last name, as is so typical of these stories from the 50s, because she's a woman, she only has a first name. Uh, we've, of, of course, course. got the, the machine itself, Matilda, which isn't necessarily a character per se, but it's definitely, as, we, as we've referred to in other stories, Matilda is a definite presence. It's definitely a plot device. That is true. And then we've got a few other uh, characters who aren't necessarily central to the story, but do play some parts in, in Thornburg's sort of story arc. We've got a guy by the name of Jimmy. He's related to Thornburg. Uh, his second cousin's son or something like that. He, uh, Thornburg also has his own son, who is Jack, a member of the Space Guard and apparently stationed on Venus. Again, 1953, Venus is habitable. And in this case, I think it has thorium mines. Ooh. Yes. And the last major character we have that shows up is a guy by the name of Major Sorensen. He is another member of the security apparatus who comes into, uh, well, we'll get to his role in the story later on. And I want to call attention right away because it, it, it stems from this, this list of characters that as the story opens up, Anderson is giving us details about people's data. We, we have characters or we, we have, we have people who are introduced as part of the narrative and then we get a string of data pieces about them. And it ultimately comes around to where in talking about Thornburg himself, I'm going to read a passage really quickly here because it says Thornburg's loyalty rating was AAB2, not absolutely perfect, but the best available among men of his professional caliber. His last drugged checkup had revealed certain doubts and reservations about government policy, but there was no question of disobedience. Prima facie, he was certainly bound to be loyal. So it goes on to talk about his military career and how he rose through the ranks and so on. But the point that I'm making here is that everything is built on these very intensely personal data points that are recorded and that are maintained in the Matilda system and that are constantly brought up throughout the, the context of the story. And so Thornburg is someone who's good with data isn't the perfect guy in terms of the system. He's a potential security threat, because of his creativity and because he has interests that lie outside, but all of these things are recorded and monitored, and that's the that's he's the he's the biggest going. of the big data people. Yeah, so it's an interesting sense of data-based authoritarianism, oppression, whatever you want to call it. But it it it, it isn't even 
it, it, it isn't really explored right away as being any form of oppression or authoritarianism. It's just more, this is the way it is. We monitor data, we base our decisions on data, and some people, their lives are all about interpreting data. And that is the basis from which the story launches. And Thornburg himself, even though he's kind of the head honcho and, and runs the big data machine, you know, you get the impression he's not entirely satisfied with the way things are going. You know, you, you get some hints now and then that, you know, things were better back in the old days. He doesn't necessarily like what's going on, but since he's part of it and it's been good to him, he's kind of just going along with the system. And this sort of, you know, not say happy state of affairs, but at least apathetic state of affairs uh, continues until something happens with uh, this guy by the name of Jimmy Obrenowitz. And, uh, and Jimmy ends up being hauled off to, I guess, like a prison camp or a re-education camp or something. He's accused of being a subversive or one of the rebels. Uh, it is stated in the story that, you know, that, of course, not everybody is happy with the state of society. There is an active rebellion located somewhere, and they've got agents that are actively trying to to bring things back to you know the the good old days of liberty and freedom and happiness and everything that the current police state is not. But they're relatively underground for the most part. However, part of the idea of all of this data monitoring and data mining that happens is that they're constantly on the lookout for indications in people's responses and actions and, and everything else that they might have a proclivity to supporting this rebellion. And so when Jimmy, who again has uh, not a close relationship, but a, but a connection that is, that is connectable as far as the data points go, but as soon as this event happens with him, then Thornburg begins to become concerned that a connection will be made between Jimmy and himself, which also means Jimmy and his son, Jack, and he wants to be able to protect Jack's future and help him avoid any kind of entanglements with unsavory elements of society, so to speak, so that he doesn't have that kind of stuff work against him and in his rise to whatever rank he's going to rise to. So Thornburg, of course, being the, the master programmer and database engineer that he is, decides he's going to go in and alter a few things in the system to make the connection between Jimmy's family and his own just kind of disappear he you know, rewrites the genealogy records and whatever needs to be done to kind of disassociate Jimmy entirely with his family just as a precautionary measure. And so we start getting the idea of, of what can be done to the system if someone is sufficiently motivated. And he even makes reference to the fact that he's done this work before for certain high-ranking officials. So it's not unheard of to be altering the data in Matilda, although it's not widely, you know, widely known that this is a possibility. And it's all done by altering records, adding records, inserting even fake, fake news stories and things like that. It, it, it's more uh, like a, a catalog of stuff. I mean, think of it as a, as a giant digital scrapbook. And when you make the right connections or, or you know, add in bits and pieces here and there, or alter the, the smaller details, then the system kind of serves itself to create connections and it's all based on patterns and it's all based on on inquiry into specific data points and thornburg we get a sense early on in the story and then it just continues to evolve as we go 
he's noted as someone who really understands those patterns and is really good at seeing how they work. There's a creative element to his brain that has helped him rise to the position that he has and that gives him this ability to see the way the data works in ways that others don't necessarily see. And as he goes through and, and starts doing these alterations, he's kind of grumbling to himself. He's had to write a bunch of memos to people he doesn't really like and do a few things earlier on. And and he's got this little rebellious streak in him. And he's he thinks to himself he's that, that he's like, I, I wish everybody would go away. I hate everybody. And he realizes this is part of a song he's heard in the past by the name of Sam Hall and decides in this kind of little rebellious streak that he's going to create in the system this sort of fake persona. And it's going to have the name Sam Hall. He gives it a whole background, education, history, but a completely fake individual that now exists inside Matilda that to everybody on the outside looks like a real person. It's got a data trail. It's got everything it needs to all the records to make it seem like this person is real, even though he's not. And he kind of sits back, sort of self-satisfied, and he's like, aha, I've, I've made my little act of rebellion. And he does it all from this little booth that, that connects up to Matilda. And it, it gets referenced multiple times in the story as this, this little place with a keyboard. And he goes in and he sits down. And over a series of sessions, he builds this persona. And, and at first, he's just burying data in the system. And then once he feels like he's got a, a complete enough record concocted, he then begins to make connections between the data that he's inserted, this persona that he's created, and contemporary events. Um, and, and for as a side note, he even throws in things about like places where this guy has lived that are deliberately like like sort of off the data grid in a way, or places where no one would notice if they didn't have an exact address. Like he's got a scar on his forehead. He's uh, like all these weird little details that that just all together create this relatively complete character even though it is again pure fiction and again he doesn't really have any reason to create it other than he's just kind of lashing out in his intellectual way with what he's got available but the thing that starts to push him over the edge is he finds out that this guy jimmy who was sent off to the camps gets killed um his you know jimmy's mother calls him up and says hey they, they hauled jimmy off to the camps he's dead and, you know, Thornburg's kind of sort of realizing the injustice of it all. You know, again, like we said before, he's been kind of apathetic up to this point. The, the whole society hasn't really affected him personally. But now he's, he's getting more and more uh, disillusioned with what's going on. And he decides to, you know, kind of take his own sort of digital revenge for Jimmy being killed and, and takes his Sam Hall character and, and implicates it in the murder of a security officer in New York. Now, of course, Sam Hall doesn't exist. He can't really kill anybody. The police actually have somebody in custody. But, uh, but Thornburg's sort of like, well, we're going to get this guy off the hook and we're going to you know, change a few pieces of evidence around fingerprints and descriptions and whatnot and point the whole thing to to this new fake character. And he's like, I'm going to throw this red herring in the mix, and the police are going to go try to find this person that doesn't exist, and ha-ha, so there. And through this sort of odd chain of events, this sort of random connected thing, um, he begins to, to play with the idea of implicating Sam Hall in mayhem 
that is happening around the country. And so he, he, he alters a record here, alters a record there, and, and the, this association begins to grow, and Sam Hall, the fictitious persona, finally finds his way really to the radar of the police force on a national level. As we said before, there's the rebellion going on, or the rebels, and they, of course, you know, do certain things in society. You know, they do attack banks and things like that and rob places and people. And, and as these news stories come up, Thornburg starts kind of putting Sam Hall's character kind of near or at the center of some of these things. And all of a sudden, one day, you know, as Bill just said, Sam Hall sort of becomes public enemy number one. You know, he's implicated in enough stuff and the police have, have seen or, or seen connections to Sam Hall come up enough times that they're like, hey, we, we really need to start getting some resources to track this guy down. And it begins to enter into the public consciousness as well because people, bystanders and so on, begin inserting the notion that people fitting the general description of Sam Hall are witnessed to be at certain crime sites or terrorism sites there's all these weird little things that are going on where the where the Sam Hall sort of anti-hero vigilante Robin Hood kind of character now people are saying hey I saw Sam Hall and or I saw this guy that looks like Sam Hall and it, it's everybody it's it's not just the security it's obviously not just from Thornburg's manipulations it catches fire in the popular imagination and and in fact after after a few of these sort of data alteration trips Thornburg starts getting the idea oh if they catch me I'm going to be in some deep trouble <laughs> and he starts worrying that uh, that somebody's going to be knocking on his door saying hey what what's the deal with this this guy that doesn't exist at the computer and we need you to to investigate or he's going to thinks he's going to be under suspicion and one day of course there is a knock on the door and Major Sorensen arrives, and, and Thornburg thinks, ah, oh, the jig's up, security's found me. Sorensen comes in, starts talking to him about Sam Hall and, and why and everyone's looking for him. They can't find him. And, and right at the point where, where Thornburg thinks he's in trouble, Sorensen says something completely different and, and says the government is concerned that the rebels have invented a memory alteration device. And instead of Sam Hall not existing, the government's operating theory is the rebels have this this psychological device that can erase people's memories of Sam Hall, which is why he keeps appearing everywhere. And 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 the reason that they can't, you know, get anybody to to admit to having known him or or having been with him is because all their memories have been altered and and so this has got the government very concerned and Swordson shows up and says you're the brilliant guy here, you know, you, you're the major researcher, you're the Einstein rock star dude. Can you go and, and see if this type of technology is even feasible? And, and if so, let us know. And Thornburg's like, oh, well, I, I got off the hook. So he goes off and starts to do all this research on, on whether or not this psychological weapon can possibly exist. And as he's implicated or not, well, as, as he's drawn into this project, he, he does a bunch of research and, and yeah, there's some, there's some stuff that's been done that makes it all somewhat plausible, but it's also been discredited and it's been dismissed as a, as a non thing in the past. But he says, okay, there's an opportunity here because our culture, our, our military state is so fixated on this idea of the secret weapon. You know, here's a chance to mess with things a lot. And so he begins to go back and actually 
alter the record of uh, alter the scholarly record and the research record to insert the possibility that this thing really could exist and that it's not just plausible but that it's highly likely that it has actually been done. Yeah, and so he gets this basically gigantic binder of stuff and delivers it to the government and pretty much realizes that since everybody is dependent on the computer anyway for their information, no one's going to check up on his records. Uh, apparently, one other sort of thing to note in the society is that people don't seem to be very interested in checking anything beyond what comes out of the computer. It's like, oh, it's in the computer. It must be fact. Done. And he figures that he can basically give this big binder of information to the government and says, oh, this psychological weapon is possible. Uh, no one's going to check on me. They, you know, so he does this. The government, of course, accepts it at face value and says, oh, my God, we're going to get all our researchers working on this thing to, so we can figure out how, how it works and how to use it or reverse engineer it or find a defense against it. But anyway, the, the point is that he's got the government, at least the scientists in the government, scurrying around on this wild goose chase you know, on this technology that, that can't exist. Meanwhile, the rebellion escalates and we get to the point where it's it's essentially open war. Yeah, you've got you've got civil war breaking out all over the place. You've got all these like little news snippets of the rebels taking over cities and and you know doing all sorts of things and and basically they're making a lot of progress. And the problem is it the, it gets to the point where they start saying, "Oh, we probably need to bring these uh, guys in the space force back to help the government fight." and help us put down the rebellion. And although there have been rebellions on some of the other planets, they've been put down rather easily. So, you know, the, the Space Force has freed itself up so that it can come back and it might be the deciding factor now in this civil war. And of course, as we mentioned before, Thornburg's son Jack is in the Space Force. Thornburg is like, oh, he, he's going to be back in six weeks. And if this war is still going on, there's a really good chance that this rebellion that, that I have helped start and have been feeding information to is you know could be responsible for getting his son killed. And now he's like, oh, now what do I do? How do I get this war over with faster so by the time my, my son gets back from, from Venus in his spaceship, the war is, is over and there's no threat to him anymore. And so he decides that he's going to go after the police state, the heart of it. And he's going to destabilize the authority at the top. And so he begins concocting this scheme basically to spread conspiracy theories, well, or the conspiracy theory that the rebellion might go all the way almost to the top within the government. And he begins altering records again. Yeah, he's planning evidence for the Undersecretary of Defense and saying... Things like, oh, he was seen with some member of the rebellion several days ago. And he never does things that are, like, overt. It's not like he's creating videos or something or hard evidence. It's all insinuation. It's, like, just enough to start casting suspicion on this person. And then once they're suspicious of this person, then they're like, oh, now we got to be suspicious of all these other people that are related to this person. And so you do this a couple of times, and all of a sudden you've got everybody in the government pretty much suspicious of everybody else. People are getting removed from top positions. There's constant shuffle and churn in the upper echelons. And, and, and so he's got, you know, first of all, he's got the, 
you know, the population uh, running around looking for Sam Hall. He's got the police doing that. He's got the scientists working on this mythical project on, for data for a, a, for a technology that doesn't exist. And now he's got the whole, you know, government upper echelons running around pointing fingers and accusing each other of, of subterfuge and treason, all by manipulating the data. And of course, the longer this goes on, the harder it becomes to maintain his own distance from everything because the more altered records that exist and the more places that he has dipped into the system and changed things, you know, he's leaving a, a, a longer and longer trail, so to speak. And, and somebody someday he's afraid is going to start to figure it out. And once again, yeah. we get to a point where there's a knock on the door. Yeah, I mean, he's even he's even concerned that may, it might not even be the data manipulation that's going to get him. It's just all the suspicion he's creating could just you know hit him as a as a as a casual bystander. You know, he could get implicated because somebody else that is that they're suspicious of is now linked to him, and it you know, and he could be a victim of his own data alteration, basically. So, and as Thornburg fears, the security detail or a security detail shows up at his office. And they come in, and and he rigs this thing. He's he's holding this device in his hand. He's he's waiting for him, and and as they're they're getting ready to arrest him, he says, "You know what? You take me, you shoot me, you do anything, and I've got this. I've got a dead man switch here, and if I release this, all of the data in Matilda's going to get wiped out." Yeah, do you guys want to be the guys that do that? So he creates this little standoff, and and of course. You know, this is way above their pay grade. They have no idea how to deal with this kind of stuff. They weren't anticipating it at all. Um, you know, there's nothing in the psychological profile for Thornburg that says he's going to do anything like this. And so they completely have not anticipated this action on his part. Yeah. And Thornburg, you know, he, he mentions like, hey, we have a standoff here. Maybe we should just wait for the rebels to show up and, and see what happens with them. And the, the little squad leader, he's getting a little agitated. And eventually he, he gets to the point where he's like, I'm just going to shoot Thornburg anyway. And he essentially gets ready to, to fire. And some guy in the back of his squad ends up shooting the, the squad leader in the head, essentially you know, ending the whole problem. And it's a complete shock as a, as a turn of events. It's, it's not what we're expecting. Well, or at least I wasn't expecting it. And in this moment of confusion, then we find out that, yeah, there are indeed rebels that are actually buried within the ranks of the police and, and, and everywhere else throughout the government. And it turns out in this particular case, one of them has stepped up and chosen to act. And then, again, another little twist. We, we, we find out who one of the high-placed rebels is because he comes in to Thornburg's office. Yeah, this this pretty much brings us to the end of the story, and it's none other than the Major Sorensen, who, if you recall from earlier, was the guy who showed up talking about the whole memory eraser device and that whole conversation that Thornburg originally thought was going to arrest him, you know, several weeks ago or months ago. It doesn't really don't really know what the timeline is. Right, and it turns out that Sorensen saw in Thornburg the possibility that he could help this cause. And, and so Sorensen just concocts the whole story about the, the memory device, plants it in there as a, as a red herring, basically. Um, and, and then he's watching Thornburg as he goes through the things that he's doing and, and in the ensuing mayhem that, that transpires. 
and he begins to suspect that Thornburg has tendencies toward rebellion that are coming out in his character, and he and he guessed right. Yeah, and so Sorensen all along is part of the rebellion and, and makes a little reference to the right. fact that all along there's been these people in the military, they look out for each other, they give each other these hypno-quizzes that, that they call them to make sure that they're not caught. But yeah, so so Sorensen, he was a rebel, he, he thinks that Thornburg's going to be one, gives him this opportunity to help out by, by planning all this false uh, mind-altering device technology. Thornburg comes through and, and the, rebe- the rebels eventually seize the day, win, and I guess in theory, everybody is going to live happily ever after. Whatever that means. Yeah, or maybe they're just going to start their own tyrannic police state because (laughs) rebellions don't always end up the way you think they are going to. This is absolutely true. So there's a lot of stuff that is going on in this story. It's uh, There are arcs in it that are, as, as all of these that we've been talking about are, are relatively straightforward, and yet Anderson has concocted a story that has a fair amount of intrigue and a fair amount of detail to it that are not necessarily essential to his cause as a writer, but that that in the end all of it accumulates into a pretty interestingly complex tale. And it's certainly one that, you know, given today's technology, given our reliance upon data that is created and stored and maintained and alterable by people that we have no idea about, it it does speak to that whole question of the integrity of the data that exists about us. Who has the ability to alter it? What is it being used for? You know, all of those things that are present in our society are are present to some degree in this, you know, 1953 tale. Yeah, and you know, the in the story, it, it, part of part of it being that that there is no global computer network yet at the time that Anderson is writing this, but the idea of computers, you know, that he can see some potential, obviously, in in that this whole notion of of all this all these records, all this data that we hold, or that we maintain and that we stockpile and that we hoard. But you know the difference there is that it's one computer system, it's one data right. repository that is ultimately run by one human being, or at least he's the one that's that's in charge of it. Lots of people can put stuff in it, but then he's the guy that's kind of in charge of monitoring everything. And of course now instead we've got a seemingly infinite, although it's truly not infinite, obviously, uh, but there's this incredible astounding array of entry points into this data matrix and an infinite seemingly way a number of ways of entering stuff in accessing information and of course we've got the possibility of conflicting data showing up in systems that we have now it's a it's a far more complex reality which makes the implications far more well more far-reaching yeah, it's a little bit simplistic the way it's set up, right? The single monolithic computer. But again, you know, 1953, their you know, computers are still the size of rooms and buildings, and they do have these, you know, the technical priesthood that maintain them. So extrapolating that out from where the technology was in 1953, eh, it's not that much of a stretch to see that that's, you know, he certainly couldn't have envisioned what we have today. Right. So so the idea of one person being able to alter every single thing, you know, every piece of data, it's a little far fetched today. You know, if you look at all the distributed systems that, that track every single thing from 
you know, governments to businesses to retailers to educational institutions, one person being able to access and change records for one person across every system, it's a little far-fetched. But at the same time, the parallel that, that would be contemporary to him would be, you know, the, the government-run and maintained data vault. And, of course, there's, you know, our, our national lore suggests that there are multiple places but at one point in time, all of that stuff was physical rather than digital. And, you know, that there's these these massive repositories of information. I mean, even even things like um, the Raiders of the Lost Ark makes reference to this kind of thing. And, um, and in the X-Files, you know, early on in the series, I think it's even by, might be by season two, Scully and Mulder wind up going into a, an, an enormous underground bunker that used to be a missile silo or that's at least covered by a missile silo that has this incredible government document repository under it so th this kind of thing is part of our mythic lore of government and the control of information the library of congress on steroids oh yeah you know sort of a you know a, a fort knox for information but with all of this information that's out there you know if it's uh if people never access it, it's just this thing, this monolithic thing. But as soon as people have access to it, and as soon as it can change, you know, then then who do you trust? Do you trust the government to not add things into your record that are fictitious or that are damaging? Do you trust, you know, the people who are accessing information supposedly to safeguard the integrity of the information about you? So there's all kinds of stuff that flows from that. So anybody who's ever been the victim of identity theft knows that it's real easy to get data created about you or at least your your financial profile and your credit profile. And it is really dang hard to to get that information back off of your record if it if it does indeed, you know, get altered to that degree. So we we see this all the time in society where we're information about us is either being altered or inserted that is not necessarily true but you know the burden of proof becomes you know it's on us to somehow get all this information off of our records if we even know it exists and that's the stuff that ties in with the financials all of us are you know repeatedly have something like an FBI file that's out there and again does that exist for everybody is that just you know it, it, it's part of that whole notion of elements of the police or elements of the surveillance state maintaining notes or keeping records on the people who might potentially become a threat to our national security at some point. Yeah, and just by creating this podcast and referencing all this stuff, I'm sure that our files are being updated as we speak. This is true. Yes, and as a university professor, I'm probably someone, or at least the lore suggests that I am someone who would be of interest potentially at some point. You're already a radical subversive, probably. Yeah, which sounds like so much hogwash to me. But at the same time, you, you can easily imagine how people's imaginations run wild with this kind of stuff. And anybody who has a politically insurgent thought or a little bit of a rebellious streak in them, you know, and then you add in a little bit of paranoia and a little bit of uncertainty about how data gets used. And wow, you could really concoct some paranoia and some, some deep-rooted psychological disturbances pretty quickly. Yeah, and especially given a society like we have now where people essentially seem to take at face value anything they see or read on the Internet, right? We made reference to how all these people of the story were 
pretty much dependent on Matilda for their data, and they've pretty much blindly followed whatever was said, which was why Thornburg could make all these records alterations and people just accepted it all at face value. I mean, we all remember, you know, when Wikipedia first came out and they're like, what do you mean? Anybody can alter a Wikipedia entry? How can that possibly work, right? You can create any fact or, or say anything about anyone. Now, of course, Wikipedia seems to have gotten its act together, but it's, it's still the case pretty much that, as far as I can tell, that people will blindly believe anything they read on the internet as long as it confirms something that they already believe. Confirmation bias. There you go. Well, and you know, you start looking at the other details that, that play out in the story that Thornburg has an enormous amount of power that he can wield just by inserting an implication of some sort of a connection because there are all of these things that become, um, that become triggered data points. So for example, if you spend too much time reading Chinese philosophers or Marxist doctrine or reading certain kinds of poetry or looking at certain kinds of art, these are all indications that you might be a rebel. Or in our society, if it's part of your Amazon recently bought list. <laughs> there you go. I mean, you think about um, uh, Cambridge Analytica and all of the wild associations that they could predict, or well, all of, all of the proclivities and voting patterns, for example, that they could predict based on what would be seemingly wild associations in data points you know, the, the correlations. Mm -hmm. And re retailers doing the same thing. Exactly. You know, retailers looking at your past patterns of behavior, where you are, right? They're, they're the whole idea of targeted advertising that says, oh, I know exactly what, you know, I see Bill has bought 16 Diet Mountain Dews in the last week. I'm going to give him another advertisement to see if I can get him to buy just one more. And by the way, we think that makes him somehow unstable. So if you're questioning whether or not all of this seems... Plausible. Familiar. Of course, we've been talking about that kind of stuff. Yeah, but whether it feels familiar, wow, we, we get we get so many pop culture references, you know, film and and novels and stories that reference this kind of stuff. I mean, there, there's a bunch that come to mind. One of the one of the first ones that came to mind in terms of paralleling the whole notion of you know tracking this fictitious killer that gets introduced into the record to as a diversion or as a you know as a as a plot device. The old film No Way Out, the thriller that was Kevin Costner and um, Gene Hackman, and Costner's character is a naval officer who is part of a manhunt for a Russian agent that has killed the mistress of a, a an American congressman. And at some point, there's even they're tracking data. They're using data to track where the guy has been and what stuff or you know where where the woman was when she was killed or before she was killed based on the contents of her stomach and all this crazy stuff like that and they insert a gift that was illegally given into the national record so that Costner can make a connection between Gene Hackman's character and the killer I mean so there's all these different plot devices that seem taken directly from a story like this yeah and that's just one I mean yeah, yeah that's just we one. can all remember all sorts of one all sorts of stories where uh, you know, someone's living their own life and all of a sudden they're caught up in this great conspiracy and now the records are altered and they're all over the news for having committed a murder or robbed something. And then all their credit cards are canceled because someone changed the data records about what kind of person they were. You know, we've seen that that type of plot device used over and over and over again. Enemy of State comes to mind with Will Smith. And, yeah, minority and again, Report. Hackman, actually. Yeah. There you go, minority yeah, where, where people are on the run, you know, because people are changing the data about what these people are and aren't, or 
wasn't the Running Man? Remember the Running Man? Wasn't that also oh, about yeah. data manipulation right, yeah. way back Deep in the day? Video. Yeah. Yeah, so. and then you know, of course you've got societies in in films like Gattaca where people are assigned or are well not assigned necessarily, but are um, they they get to do certain things based on their genetic based on their makeups. genetic code, right? Yeah, so control of the information has always been associated with control of society. Ah, now we're back in cyberpunk land. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, you know, the there are stories that are kind of carried through that that you could see tying all the way back to something like this story from Anderson, you know, where although he himself is never really implicated in any of the cyberpunk stuff, you could see this being an influence for the writers who are taking it in that direction. So, yeah, and and given the fact that this is an early story, I mean, it it does have its flaws, right? I guess flaws, but it's it's outdated elements, you know, the guy's... Yeah, I mean, he talks about procuring something called prussic acid as his suicide pill somehow. I'm not even sure how that works, but apparently it will kill you if you take it. I don't know if he gets it at the corner drugstore after World War IV or what. Uh, but, you know, we kind of talked about the whole monolithic computer, right? He makes reference to it as being, you know, as big as like an Aztec temple, which is just kind of amusing at this point in time, you know, with the whole... Well, and the idea that there would be individual people like, or like a, a very small core of people or one person in particular that would have the ability to control all of that data. Yeah, with um, no checks and balances, no oversight, right? You know, that somebody could just run amok. I mean, in, in the technology industries where I've always worked, there's there's some kind of chain where you can't just make changes without somebody else signing off on it and approving it. Right. Yeah, so there's this that sort of insider, you know, almost a you know a technological priesthood. Which of course there are stories that literally have technological priesthoods in oh, them, yeah. but that that implication. So, so other things we have in the story, we've got that whole, like you said, American exceptionalism, superiority. We we control the world, even though we're not doing it very well. Uh, you know, the the computers, of course, are made up of you know punch cards and tubes. Like in the very beginning of the story, the guy presents his punch card to the hotel manager or something like that to be read and once again we've got references to colonies on mars and venus and and all of that sort of thing yep so so plenty of you know anachronistic technology references in there but they really don't take away that much from the the core concept and the the core messaging of the story one of the most peculiar though has to be the idea of the hypno quiz like this this notion that if somebody suspects you of something, or even just as a, as a matter of routine observation and monitoring, that you would undergo some sort of... A drugged hypno-quiz at that. <laughs> yes. You know, where, where you enter into a state where you are apparently incapable You've of hiding the, things the from old people. Truth I mean, that's serum. the implication here. It's the old sodium barbital pentothal, whichever it is. I can never remember. Yeah, well, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll give you some truth serum and ask you. So, what you what do you think of the story on the scale? Is that a a what the fuck, a whoa, or a hmm kind of a story for you? That's a good question. I I would say that it probably has to fall somewhere between hmm and whoa because they're trying to, or Anderson is trying to say, hey, there's imagine a world where information was everything, and so there's there's a bit of a whoa there. But at the same time, there's also the, you know, the implications of all those actions and the power that comes from it. You know, he's trying to make us pause, trying to make us thinking, hmm, what, what about this? What about that? Yeah, what are the implications of this type of society? What are the implications of, of how 
data manipulation can control outcomes in the physical world. So that is a that's a big hmm on my part as well. And sadly, I I would love to be able to say that there's a what the fuck factor with this, but it's it's all too plausible and and, and all too real in in just a variety of ways. Yeah, it's pretty sad when what the fuck is the general state of things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there you go. That, that that's more like why can't it be different? What the fuck? Hey, you know what, Dan? I realize now that that we forgot something here that we stumbled across in the process of of doing our reading and research here, and it's the song itself. There is really a Sam Hall song. Oh yes, the actual title of the story. Yes, Sam Hall, the 18th century version of uh, Jack Hall, I think, or where where Jack was actually a, I think he was a thief instead of a murderer. But yes, if you want to listen to the song Sam Hall. Johnny Cash actually has it on YouTube, and you can get a gist of what it's all about. And there's a bunch of versions out there that cover a lot of different kinds of genres, but Cash's, I think, is absolutely the best. It's got the the cool Cash voice to it and the whole vibe to it, and yeah, he does it justice. Yeah, not is it? What, it's only a, a song about what disenfranchisement or or outrage or something. It's kind of hard to describe. Give it a listen. See what you think. So even though Sam Hall is you know, pretty much a genius at what he does, our next story is kind of dealing with the opposite of geniuses. It is Cyril Kornbluth's classic, The Marching Morons. Come on back for that one. 